Hello, everyone. Um, we've got two Bible readings again this morning. So the first one is from John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. And then we'll flick over to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. Um, so the first one, John chapter 20, beginning at verse 24. Um, and it'll be on the screen behind me as well. But Thomas, called Twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the, um, mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. One? Yes, there we go, that's better. Um, hello to those that now can hear me online. Uh, as, I, as we continue this series on why I believe, uh, I want to share with you uh, about how uh, exploring the evidence for faith in history and science were part of my story. Uh, these are huge topics. Um, so let me first of all start and say thank you to the tech team who solved a bunch of problems this morning, jumped in to fix things. I do love technology when it works, um, but uh, we'll be exploring a range of things. I've always been uh, quite curious, fascinated 
by things around me. I've been a tinkerer for a long time. Uh, I remember breaking a clock uh, to see how it worked, only to find that the glass case that I broke open ended up in my mother's foot and she ended up in hospital. But uh, I've always been a tinkerer, explorer, looking for answers. And while I grew up in a Christian household, uh, I needed to know if Christianity was for real. Now, in the Dark Ages, of course, we believed in fairies, uh, spirits, superstition, and you'll find all kinds of past practices in history, rituals about how to bring the rains, how to appease the gods. Uh, God was the answer to the big things. So, for example, in the 12th century, uh, when there was a lunar eclipse uh, and the sun transformed uh, the moon into the shape of a sickle and darkness spread across the land, people considered that to be a sign of God's judgment upon them and oncoming uh, bloodshed. But of course, science has explained uh, away many of the reasons why superstition was held and explains why things actually happen, right? And for many of us, as we look back at those in history, we see them as kind of ignorant, especially the religious. We're so smart now. We can predict weather patterns, mostly. Uh, We can move atoms with an electron beam microscope. And quite recently, we can ask ChatGPT, a natural language AI bot, to write sermons. I wrote this one, just saying. (laughs) Has anyone else used it? I've had a lot of fun with that, my goodness. Uh, Where is God in all of this? In the way that we understand the world today, where is God? The Christian answer to this must be more than just speaking about God in a spiritual sense, especially because the Christian claim is that God has not only made all things, but has entered into creation, into history. And therefore, our claim to faith is not simply that it works or that it gives us a sense of spiritual peace, but that it is true, objective, evidence-based faith. Blind faith is of little interest to me. I'm exploring science and history as I outline some of the evidence I see for what I consider a reasonable and life-changing faith in Jesus. Uh, It's going to be quite a different sermon to those that I've given before, and I think for some it will be fascinating, for others it will be boring, uh, and maybe for others even a little provocative. Um, But I'll be opening up Q&A at the end, and I I mostly look forward to that. Uh, So the two questions I'm going to be asking is, is Christianity historically reliable? Again, that is a huge topic, but I want to provide some inroads to thinking about that. And two, is science and Christian faith compatible? Again, massive topic but I'll provide some inroads. So first of all, is uh, Christianity historically reliable? Our first passage that um, Deanne read for us from 1 Corinthians makes the incredible historical claim about the most outrageous aspect of Christianity, that is the resurrection. Surely Christians would want to hide that bit away, right? That's the weird bit. But there it is, front and centre. It's central to our faith. Uh, When Paul, before uh, Governor Felix, uh, was speaking about the resurrection, he said, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. Surely the king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his attention because it was not done in a corner. There is the resurrection, centre stage in history. Surely you saw it, surely you've heard about it, Uh, surely it's worth discussing. Further, Paul says in this letter to Corinthians, as um, as we read from chapter 15, uh, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. That was a little bit after the passage that was read to us. There again, Paul is saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection, Christianity falls apart. It's not a sense that the resurrection is a doctrine reserved for the elite, you know, those that are finally hooked into Christianity and then get the secret knowledge. 
It's there front and center. Christianity is unashamedly historical. At the beginning of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says more than 500 people saw the risen Lord Jesus. And he adds this little comment, most of these are still living. It's an invitation, he writes it, it's an invitation to actually interrogate, to cross-examine, as it were, uh, the, the eyewitnesses of this incredible moment. Now, we can't do that, of course, that's the way history works. Uh, exploring history is very different to science. You can't prove that re- Jesus rose from the dead uh, in the same way that you might be able to prove that force equals mass times acceleration. The historical writers of the Scriptures know this and make a reasonable case for the reliability of their witness. And as we look at the historical reliability of the Scriptures, we ought to consider, as we would any historical evidence, which requires assessment interpretation. We've got to go through a few questions to to be critical about what it is that we believe. Is it evident-based? Is it reasonable? The first question I want to ask is, can we trust the authors? When Luke begins his Gospel, he writes this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. There is Luke, a physician, as we know from Colossians, uh, being commissioned by Theophilus to actually gather up the eyewitness accounts. That is, he wasn't an eyewitness, but he's being very careful, very deliberate in setting up his purpose, his place in this, and really inviting people to investigate that which he has investigated. Or, for instance, John, when he writes his Gospel, as we read from chapter 20, It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. John is a beloved disciple, as he refers to himself throughout the Gospel. He is an eyewitness, and he writes with intention and carefulness, so that people might believe. Or consider Paul, he writes in, uh, in the passage we had read to us from 1 Corinthians 15, as one abnormally born, or born in the wrong time. He's referring there, I think, to the fact that he didn't come to Jesus uh, with the other disciples and apostles. Jesus appeared to him specially, because he was, as he writes in Philippians, so zealous for the faith that he would persecute the church. He was hostile, and yet God so transformed him when he encountered the Lord Jesus, that he now doesn't persecute the church, but plants churches. In each one of the cases of the authors of the New Testament, we are able to explore who wrote it, what their story was, maybe a couple, maybe Hebrews, for instance, a bit contentious, but we're able to understand who they are, their purpose in writing, and uh, it's important to note that these authors emphasise the fact that they had good information, as or from eyewitnesses, because it mattered to them that the New Testament writers were telling the truth about Jesus. We should also understand the context of these writers. They weren't distant historians. For instance, one of the first um, church historians, Eusebius, wrote in the 4th century. Uh, But that's 4th century, that's a long time after the fact. These authors of the New Testament were very much in the action, or just afterwards. 
So internally, we can see the evidence of Paul writing to first-generation Christians and interacting, inviting them to interact with what he's saying. Uh, We have the external evidence of manuscripts being dated back to the first half of the second century, which is very early for ancient history. Uh, Some of you might not be aware that we don't actually have the original manuscript. We don't have Paul's actual letters. We don't have John's actual gospel. But as we take uh, the many manuscripts that we have, we can look at how they converge back to to what will be a single source and give us a great sense of confidence, uh, perhaps the greatest sense of confidence we have of historical writings. Many of the disciples died for what they knew to be true also. Think of that as context. Uh, They are not believers in the same sense that we are believers. They actually saw with their eyes and they either knew it to be true or they knew it to be a lie. But the fact that they died for their faith, many of them, tells you that they are willing to stand on the truth that they saw with their own eyes. This helps us appreciate the reliability of who the authors are and their context and purpose. Thirdly, we can explore the accuracy of, uh, of the documents. For example, I've already referenced the manuscripts. Here's a little picture, uh, it's probably hard to read, but you know, in terms of ancient manuscripts, uh, it, we have something like uh, 1,700 copies of Homer. Uh, that's quite a lot of copies, but it's written several hundred years after, um, after, after the fact. Whereas in the New Testament, we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts written uh, very early on in history, uh, after the fact. And that gives historians great confidence that these should be taken seriously. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons why the Bible, at the bottom, you'll see little footnotes um, where it says, uh, it may say this, or kind of uh, some manuscripts omit this word. Uh, that's part of the integrity to the, to the research in manuscripts to say that as we've looked at these thousands of manuscripts, uh, there are small variances, but no major doctrine hangs off these variances, and it's actually part of the integrity to say this little thing was missing. It helps us gain confidence uh, in the reliability of the Scriptures. Well, consider when we're asking the question of accuracy, the Pool of Siloam. It's referenced in John chapter 9, and for a long time, a long, long time, there was no actual evidence for this pool. And it was easy, low-hanging fruit for those that wanted to push against the reliability of Scriptures. But the pool was discovered during an excavation work uh, looking for a sewer in the autumn of 2004. And it was a bit of an aha moment to say, actually, the Gospels do speak about actual events uh, and actual uh, parts of this ancient world. And uh, that's a great thing to explore. There's many other examples like that. Or consider, for example, external witnesses. Uh, There's a number of these, but Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman governor, uh, who was what you would call a hostile witness, not a fan of Christianity by any stretch of the imagination, uh, wrote in the early 2nd century that Christians met regularly and sang hymns to Christ as if a god. A Roman historian, Tacitus, also refers to the crucifixion of Christ by Pilate. Again, I cover over some of these things so that we might actually say there is evidence to explore the reasonableness of our faith. So much so that uh, E.P. Sanders, uh, who is a historical Jesus scholar, uh, wrote this, there are no substantial doubts about the general course of Jesus' life, when and where he lived, approximately when and where he died and the sort of thing he did during his public activity. Now, he would be respected amongst uh, other uh, historians um, and he's not necessarily fully on board with 
what we would consider orthodox faith, but nonetheless, it's an important statement to say to us that uh, Jesus is a historical figure, one we ought to take seriously. Now, none of what I've said proves that Jesus rose from the dead. It's important for us to concede that, but that's not how history works. Some of the things I've said gives us an ability to take the historical record seriously, and the question when presented with the evidence is to ask, is Jesus really who He says He is? Because John says at the end of his Gospel, uh, again, according to his purpose in writing, if He is the Messiah, the Son of God, then believing in Him means you will have life. We're not just exploring this as curious amateur armchair historians, wondering what happened in the past, this comes with a truth claim uh, that asks us to respond. Now, if the historical record points to a resurrection, do we have space in our understanding of the world to believe that? That brings us to our next bit. I was going to bring up a glass of water so I could take a, a bit of a break for us, let some of the things I said sink in. I'll just give you 10 seconds. Because this is another substantial topic. Maybe if, um, if you sort of have some questions that have come to mind over thinking about, very briefly, about history, just take a mental note of that and we'll come back to that. But as we switch to science, uh, this is another whole realm of study and exploration. And, uh, you know, for, for me, when I consider the heavens, the work of God's hands, the moon and the stars, I'm with Psalm 8, who I'm quoting, who am I that God would be mindful of me? Just in the last two weeks, um, I've managed to watch uh, the sun rise uh, over, the, over the sea at Port Stephens. I've swum with dolphins. Uh, there are these moments where you just feel awed uh, by, by God's handiwork. I mean, as a Christian, I see these things and I go, wow. Or this picture from the James Webb telescope. Uh, atheists, of course, will look at that and say, wow, isn't science amazing? I say, isn't God amazing? Whether you're looking at the large scale of the cosmos or the, or the, the bizarre, fascinating small scale of the quantum realm, our world is fascinating. Now, as we think about this, uh, people look at the world differently. So, for instance, we have Francis Collins, uh, who is the science advisor to the president and used to be the head of the Human Genome Project. He says this, if you see God as the creator of the universe, in all of its amazing complexity, diversity and awesome beauty, then science, which is, of course, a means of exploring nature, also becomes a means of exploring God's creative abilities. And so, for me, as a scientist who is also a religious believer, research activities that look like science can also be thought of an opportunity to worship. I love that. I subscribe to that view. We also have another scientist, Peter Atkins, a professor of chemistry from Oxford University, uh, who's now retired from that position, says this, Science and religion cannot be reconciled. Religion has failed, and its failures should stand exposed. Science, with its currently successful pursuit of universal competence through the identification of the minimal, the supreme delight of the intellect, should be acknowledged king. Uh, see the way that he phrases that, that science has so kind of uh, engulfed all knowledge that there's no room left for religion and it should be exposed as a failure. So, how are we going to proceed here? Well, I want to make a couple of claims about science and faith in general, and then I want to actually look at three views of how we might relate science and religion as we consider evidence and synthesis. That sounds a bit scientific. But uh, firstly, rather than being enemies, 
uh, science and faith, uh, I, I do believe, have a place together, and particularly thinking that the origins of science actually has its foundation in theology. That's a big claim. Monotheistic faith is a good basis for good science. For example, if different gods ruled over different parts of the world, why would you expect uh, the same actions to produce the same results everywhere? But Christians and people who subscribe to monotheistic faiths had a sense that there was order uh, over the whole universe. The premise that the universe is rationally investigatable is a world-transforming assumption. Both Tom Holland, the author, and Rodney Stark, the social scientist, have shown to be at the root of Western technology pro technological progress and social development since the Middle Ages. They say real science only arose once in Europe, where highly developed alchemy became chemistry, and uh, advanced astrological systems became astronomy. That's a big claim. Alfred Whitehead, the uh, 20th century mathematician, says, how do you get such rapid expansion of scientific knowledge in just 200 years, referring to the Enlightenment after the medieval uh, era? Modern science must come from the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. And my explanation, explanation is the faith in the possibility of science generated antecedently to the development of the modern scientific theory. It's an unconscious derivative from medieval theology. Now, that's kind of uh, a little bit long-winded. Uh, C.S. Lewis sums up that to say, men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. I labour this because it's quite profound. The reason that we can have a purchase on reality with mathematical laws and order is because behind that is a lawmaker, one who created the world with order. Now, science is still grappling with the beginning of the universe, and that's a profound thing. That the universe had a beginning points to, how did that start? Is there a creator behind that? And there's all kinds of exploration to try and get around that, for example. Uh, but we're also grappling with the very specific conditions for it to even support life. For example, uh, we, sometimes people refer to this as the fine-tuning of the universe, whether that be the strong nuclear force coupling constant, entropy of the universe, Planck's constant, expansion rate of the universe. Just give you one example. Uh, if you consider uh, the expansion rate of the universe, uh, that's governed by um, the cosmological constant, uh, that has to be accurate within 1 times 10 with 120 zeros behind it. That is an incredibly small window for life to exist. Uh, to give you a sense of how big that number is, our best calculation is that there are far less atoms in the universe than the size of that number. That is incredible. That's just one of the fine-tuning elements that's required to support life in this universe. If that number was out a bit too, was a bit too, was smaller, uh, then you would expect um, that the universe would, would collapse upon itself, or, or if it was a little, just a little bit bigger, uh, then the universe would keep expanding at such a rapid rate that stars wouldn't have formed, and we wouldn't have had heavy atoms enough to support life. It's incredible. I remember hearing someone describe it like a tornado whipping through a junkyard and expecting it to form a fully functional 747. It's preposterous. But of course, when scientists who want to uh, consider life without God think that just time and chance will produce just that. Now, of course, we're making an assertion here, 
uh, on faith, on how all this works. But let me say a couple more things. Firstly, uh, God's otherness, that is that I believe that God is the creator and He created a creation separate to Himself, means that we cannot just shine a telescope or a microscope and, and expect to be able to find God. There's no gap in causality that you can say, that is God doing His thing just there. God is above all and sustaining all. Now, to ground this and enter some of the complexity, I want to look at three views of how science and Scripture relate. I acknowledge that there's going to be people in the room here who are probably across all three views. And so, I wanted to take a posture of epistemological humility. Uh, that is, that we, none of us know all things, but as we journey on uh, faith-seeking understanding... Uh, let us be respectful of one another and, and see how it is that we might be able to synthesize and see the compatibility of faith and science rather than enemies. Now, before talking about these three views, it's worth saying that there is, of course, a version of this that is completely incompatible. So, for instance, scientism or, or similarly materialism that defines a world by definition, an a priori assumption that there is nothing supernatural, that, that only matter matters and that we are just matter of course, excludes the possibility of there being a God. And so, that's an irreconcilable position. Uh, but uh, if we're open to science being broader than that, uh, then we will find ways to explore this together. So, first of all, let's explore science and Scripture as separate. Now, in this view, we see kind of Christianity and science as completely different fields with different scopes. Science tells us how things happen and Scripture tells us why things happen it's simplistic and sometimes helpful. It helps us do good science, I might say. So, for instance, when Napoleon asked French mathematician Laplace where God fits into his mathematical work, Laplace says, Sir, I have no need of that hypothesis. Uh, he didn't have a, a sort of a part of his mathematics where, where sort of Jesus was inserted. He didn't need that. It would have been a very different question to ask, on what grounds ought you expect the world to have mathematical order? But that's not the question that Laplace was asked. However, this view can lead to dualism, uh, that is, a separation of spiritual and physical. And we've already seen kind of the resurrection is, is kind of an overlapping of these two things. In this view, it's easy to see God as a watchmaker, the God who sort of designed the world and all its intricacy, wound it up and then sort of stepped back to let it go, because He is separate too, He's spiritual and this is physical. But if we ask the question, how might we understand God's involvement in the world, uh, that's a challenging question. Or how might we understand verses like, He makes the sun rise and He causes the grass to grow for the livestock? My critique of this view is that it needs a way to understand how God relates to science. And for that, I think we need to explore God's personalness. Not only that He's established the laws that ordinarily govern nature, but that He sustains the world with His Word. That's how Hebrews puts it in speaking about Jesus. He sustains all things by His powerful Word. And I found it helpful to think about this as God's agency. That is, that God is a personal agent involved in the orders of this world. Now, that can get a little bit of a head explosion territory. There's a couple of analogies to help you out. Uh, one, for example, you could imagine someone who has analysed and come to understand the workings of the internal combustion engine, like every part of it. But at no point can the person who, the engineer, the scientist who explores the mechanics of the internal combustion engine, can prove or disprove the existence of Henry Ford, for example. 
uh, the designer or the agent involved in producing such an engine. I found it also helpful to think about uh, Shakespeare. If we were living in the play, uh, any of the plays that Shakespeare wrote, uh, you don't find Shakespeare written into the play unless he wants to write himself into the play. And so as we inhabit this world of which God sustains by his word, we can't ordinarily just argue back to or, or even disprove the agency of the one who sustains all things by his word unless he writes himself into the story. I've recently been reading this book, Biblical Critical Theory, by uh, Christopher Watkins. Uh, I love the way, and it's just a brief comment here, I love the way that he sees how the personal nature of God is able to both sustain science in its orderliness, but also the I-thou relationship with God, the arts, the creativity, the personality. In a science-only worldview, everything is impersonal and descends to that. But, but with Christian faith, we have a way to hold together the orderliness of the world and God's personalness, and they overlap. So we can't see them as completely separate. The resurrection miracle affirms, of course, that the ordinarily way that people uh, live and die has an order to it. The resurrection is a statement that this is a miracle, this is not the way things ordinarily go, and yet it's also a revelation of God's personalness within the order, within history. The next two views try to explore that, the integration that we're talking about. Just take a breath because that was a lot, wasn't it? Science fits within Scripture. Uh, this sees God's Word as so true that all other claims to truth must be mediated through God's Word. Now, the most obvious example of this, and perhaps the most controversial, will be Genesis 1 and 2, that God created the world in six days. And therefore, whatever limited understanding we have of creation through science must be understood within this framework. Versions of this would include that God created a mature universe, complete with fossil record, just as God created uh, a mature Adam on day six. What I find helpful about this view is that it pushes against the kind of the, the all-encompassing uh, evolution theory. For example, I listened to a couple of podcasts, I can't remember, they were on various topics, not even science per se, and in each podcast, what was considered sort of bedrock into, our, into sort of the, the wise and the understanding of the world were casual references to evolutionary theory, as though that was the summation of all we had to know about the why and the how of the way the world works. There's got to be more to life than that. Uh, so I like that this, this view pushes against that. Oh, thank you. It's also helpful to distinguish and push back against evolution as though it was one simple and coherent theory. The difference between macro and micro evolution is very significant. I won't go into all that now. Uh, also, kind of how life came from non-life. Uh, these are very complex uh, uh, kind of topics of which science is still trying to form its understanding around. Uh, so let's not assume that evolutionary reasons uh, is bedrock completely. But I do wonder if this view can overload genres of Scripture. We know that when the Psalms speak of the corners of the earth or that God has pitched a tent for the sun, of course we consider those poetic descriptions. Genesis is more complex. It presents as historical. But I wonder if there's some room for interpretation here. For example, as we read the Babylonian account of creation in the Enuma Elish, where the world was created in the chaos of many gods battling and creation was sort of formed out of that, 
Genesis 1 and 2 stands in complete contrast with the simplicity of the order of creation and the way the Lord spoke it into being. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 in, may not, for example, be speaking about six 24-hour periods. Uh, but as soon as we start exploring those possibilities, it does raise some disconcerting questions. For example, what is real and historical? And if we start undermining the bedrock of our faith, it's a very dangerous place to be, perhaps. Which leads me to explore the third view, science and scripture in dialogue. Now, this view seeks to synthesize the scientific account of the world and the biblical account. It considers science and scripture as ways of looking at the world. That being said, I think it's worth saying that the Scripture will always hold a foundational status as we have this dialogue, but nonetheless, it seeks to find a correspondence between these two views. Those who subscribe to this view might be satisfied, for example, to see evolution as part of God speaking the world into existence. Uh, is this a modern phenomenon of, of, of Christians bending under the weight of scientific evidence? Not necessarily. Augustine, in the fourth century, a bishop, uh, was exploring Genesis, he did have a several volumes of writings, he wrote, what kind of days these are is difficult or even impossible for us to imagine. Even before sort of uh, massive science explorations on this topic, he was simply standing in awe of how God did create the world and avoiding simple explanations. Now, one thing I will say on this view is that we must let clear passages of the Scripture help us to understand other aspects. That's just a good way of reading Scripture and in understanding the world. So, it's not so simple just to say, well, evolution fills in the gaps. How might we understand, say, Romans 5, that sin entered the world through one man, just as life entered the world through another? Who is this one man if we're going to subscribe to evolution? Uh, one possible synthesis here, from Fazal Rana, who has a PhD in biochemistry and heads up Reasons to Believe, gives the example of how Adam and Eve were the first Homo sapiens and lived about 100, 200,000 years ago and whose descendants interbred with Neanderthals to account for the observed genetic diversity amongst humans today. Now, for some people, that's going to be quite a provocative idea and for others, it might be helpful. But I present these ways so that we might, in faith-seeking understanding, explore our faith with real evidence, with eyes open. We do not subscribe to blind faith, but using the brains that God has given us in, in, a, in a posture of humility so that we might know God more and more. I love Thomas uh, in this respect. As Deanne read for us from uh, John chapter 20, there is doubting Thomas as we've come to love him and know him, and he's saying, I'm not going to believe until I see Jesus and touch with my own hands. But Jesus responds to him after he has touched, blessed are those who have not seen and will not see and believe. We must go on our journey, wrestling with our doubts and taking up Jesus' invitation to explore Him, to investigate not only Him, but the world that He has made for us to inhabit. And of course, we do not do these things simply as curious bystanders, but open to the possibility that we really were created by a God who loves us and has died for us, that we might be reconciled back to Him and come to know Him. When St. Anselm actually coined the phrase, faith-seeking understanding, he was writing about an active love of God seeking a deeper knowledge of Him. May that be a great description of us, 
as we curiously and in all humility explore all that God is to us in Jesus and all that He has made for us in His wonderful world. Let me pray. Father, we thank You so much that You have made Yourself known in the world that You have created. Help us to wrestle with our doubts, to be open with our exploration and to follow the Lord Jesus as He guides us in understanding not only who we are, but what the world is and your purposes in it. And ultimately, we pray that you would be glorified as we do such things together. Amen.